All right. Well, <laughs> you know, we're preaching today. We are preaching about the number of the beast. Um, I Maybe I need to confess again. I'm a little giddy. I mean, two weeks ago, we, we got to get into the kind of the technical aspects of Revelation and how the cycles of vision work, how they're like replays of the big of uh, of of Christ's victory over Satan in this world. And last week, we got to talk about the war in heaven, and now this week we had to talk about the number of the beasts. So I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like the metal kid in the candy store, where all of these like themes are being brought out and all these things that I've been super interested in forever. So um, I am excited to talk today and to to dig out with you together uh, what. This all means, what does God, what does this mean? This big enigma that has so many guesses have been made about what is, who is the beast? And what is the number of the beast? And how do we figure this all out? And so today we're going to talk about that. So let's, let's, uh, let's now read together. Let's, let's pay attention. Let's, let's listen intently uh, to God's inner word. This is Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, dwelling, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The number of the beast. Man, if this is not the epicenter of Revelation crazy, I don't know what is. There has been more speculation about who this might be, uh, more metal songs written about the beast and the number of the beast. Maybe there's more speculation about this than, in, than every other conspiracy theory put together. Everybody wants to know. This is such a, a compelling, it's, you know, just the way it, it's, it's laid out. This is the number of a man. And so everybody gets to it trying to figure out what the number is and, and then tries to attach that number to some historical figure. There's been one, one study that I, I looked at this week that showed from 1560, about the time of the Reformation, all the way through 1900, there were over 100 names of different people that were put forward with, with sustained biblical argumentation about how this person was absolutely, without a shadow of the doubt, the beast of Revelation. And then Obviously, that person would come and go, or that epoch would end, and then another study, and then another study, and then another study, and another study. We see we see that in our own in our own time, really in our own like in a micro in a micro way. Um, there was a, a funny article by Babylon Bee that was like kind of made fun of the fact that at the end of every presidential term, Christian bookstores had to go through and purge all the books that were making you know comprehensive arguments about how that president was necessarily. Uh, the beast and how his name somehow equaled 666. I remember this. I mean, I'm all the way from from Ronald Reagan all the way to present uh, with Donald Trump. There have been sustained arguments about how this person somehow fits that mold, uh, which is because we're American Christians, right? Um, Nobody in China is worried about whether or not, you know, Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump or Barack Obama is the beast for the most part. They're worried about other people and other things because in their culture, in their time, it's different. Their circumstances are different. Maybe the most comprehensive and interesting study that I've ever read on this was a, a, a comprehensive <laughs> uh, sustained argument that unequivocally proved that David Hasselhoff was actually the beast and that his name, that's number 666, actually amounted or was equal to his name. And I don't know, maybe they were right about that one, but what's the point? I mean, the point with the study was, was, a, was a parody and the, por- the purpose of it was to point out that something that one other, a commentator said in my reading this week, he said, you know, basically that it is pretty easy It's pretty easy to get a name uh, to fit the number, but it's not so easy to get the number to fit a name. When we start with a number, it's harder to get it to fit into the name, but if you start with the name, you can kind of massage that name around in various ways to get it to equal 
some formula of, of 666. So what the heck's going on? So many wrong guesses. Is it even possible that we um, can figure this out? And the answer, I'm convinced, is yes. And today we're going to solve the mystery. And I'm not even kidding. Did I just hit my mic again? Sorry. I'm not even kidding. Today I hope uh, to convince you uh, uh, and to solve the mystery of who is the beast and what is the number of his name. So let's let's get into it but like always you know as we go through this the book of revelation it, um it has a bigger story to tell right and like always revelation there's a bigger storyline going on here than the seemingly fantastic horror sci-fi uh movie feeding frenzy that's taking place around this passage and uh and the bigger story is that this is a promise this whole passage, it's a promise for God's people. It's a call to wisdom, but it's a promise. And the promise is this, is that God promises to preserve his saints through Satan's counterfeit kingdom. God promises to preserve us, his saints, through Satan's counterfeit kingdom. So let's break that down and, and look at what that means one part at a time. First thing is, is this idea of counterfeit. What does that mean? And how is how is uh, this talking about a counterfeit kingdom? Well, I have uh, talked about this in sermons before, but I love, I have a deep love for automatic watches. And that, those are watches that are comprised of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny parts, no batteries. Uh, they're self-winding. And, and the really good ones are able to keep time, you know, with a time loss of maybe one or two seconds a month, right? Love automatic watches just for the, uh, ew, here's my battery pack. I love automatic watches. Uh, and probably, uh, <laughs> I'm falling apart here. Look at this, look at this, Satan is attacking us. <laughs> Sorry, okay, let me crank this down. Battery pack, check. Table, check. iPad, check. Okay, automatic watches. I love automatic watches. And arguably, like, the pinnacle of automatic watches is, uh, at least for sto social status, there's better ones, but is the Rolex. It's the Rolex is kind of like the, the epitome of, of automatic watches. However, the Rolex also comes with a giant price, right? A giant price tag and... and uh, probably kind of in, pretty inflated. And so uh, I will never have a Rolex, just too much money. And I just couldn't justify spending that much money on a Rolex. And so what that means is that there's this ever present temptation. Uh, and the temptation is, uh, is the Folex, <laughs> the fake Rolex. And especially since I go to China, usually every year I go to China every year, China China has uh, these underground secret factories and there's a whole like dark web, uh, uh, there's a whole like a dark web experience where you can get on, you know, these dark web websites that will put you in touch with these underground Chinese factories that, that produce the elusive so-called one-to-one replica Rolex. Or it's just a just straight up counterfeit, but it's done really well so that 
if you're not wise in the way of watches, you would totally believe that it's a Rolex. And you can get one of these things for like, you know, four or 500 bucks versus a thousand bucks. And so there's this temptation to, you know, so always this temptation. Should I get one? Should I not get one? Maybe I'll just get one and keep it in myself and just wear it at the house. Maybe, you know. <laughs> it's constant temptation, right? But what's the, what's the problem? The problem is, here's the problem with the Folex, the big problem. I mean, there's a lot of problems. Number one, it's, in, it's, it's, it's a, you know, copyright infringement. It's basically piracy. It's stealing uh, the trademark, you know, and intellectual property of other people of, of Rolex Corporation. And so, it, you know, there's all that to consider. But the bigger one is this. You wear it. What you get is you can, you can, you can like get the social respect. You can steal like the social respectability of it. You can get like, you know, the surface uh, and sinful benefit of it, the pride and the reputation, all that out of wearing it. However, over the course of time, they look good, but eventually they kind of, they break down and they fail. They don't have the same waterproofing uh, as good as they may make them. Eventually, they're not the original. They're a cheap knockoff. And eventually they break down and they fail because they're not real. Now, why am I telling you all this about, why, am I, why are we talking about the Folex and my love of automatic watches? Well, Satan's kingdom is very much like that. Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit kingdom. And that is the big idea that this first part of chapter 13 is trying to teach us. And, and the big idea here is that the dragon... <laughs> Can we turn the camera around and show Haley like cowering after slamming the oven door in the middle of the sermon? We're just winning here today, folks. Oh, this is fantastic. So, okay, that's all right. <laughs> you want to get me a Coke while you're in there? <laughs> big idea. Okay, big idea is that Satan is creating this counterfeit, uh, unholy trinity. Okay. Now there are, there are way too many parallels in this passage. I could, there's no way I could hit all of the evidence that we got in this passage. So I'm going to have to hit the highlights here and then we can talk more about it in the Q and A if we need to. But here, here are the highlights. Satan is creating a counterfeit unholy Trinity. Listen, first, the dragon creates a son in his image. Where do we leave off in chapter 12 last week? We left off with a dragon off to make war on the rest of the saints. And then the, the very last part, the very last line says, and he stood by the shore of the sea. And so there's Satan kind of mimicking God in the original creation story while standing by the waters. And he brings out of the waters, imaging the image of himself. He brings out the image, his son made in his own image. Now listen to all the parallels of this, of the beast, the first beast with Jesus. Number one, the beast has 10 crowns on his horns. Jesus has many crowns on his head. Same word, diadems. Uh, that's, uh, the beast has blasphemous names. Jesus has worthy names. The beast has a counterfeit resurrection. Uh, the fatal wound that's healed. They make a big deal of that through this passage. 
uh, and his recovery is marveled at by the whole world, and it causes people to follow and worship him, just as the resurrection of Jesus causes people to follow and worship Jesus. The beast has a seal that he puts on the forehead of his followers, and Jesus, in chapter 7, seals his people uh, with a seal on their foreheads. <sighs> There's so much more. I wish we had time to go into so much more of this. Um, but we'll have to stop there. So that the first beast is a counterfeit image of, of the dragon creating the sun in his own image. Now, is there a Holy Spirit? Is there a counterfeit Holy Spirit? Yes, that's what the second beast is. The Holy Spirit speaks God's word. The false prophet, who the second beast is referred to farther on in chapter 16 as the false prophet, uh, and what does a prophet do? A prophet is the one who reveals God, who reveals uh, God into the world, which is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Holy Spirit speaking God's word. We see the false prophet speaks like a dragon. The false prophet works miraculous signs to draw people to worship the beast. The Holy Spirit works real miraculous signs to draw people to worship Jesus. The Holy Spirit has all the authority of Jesus. The false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. The Holy Spirit guides people into the truth. The false prophet deceives. And so the big idea, the big conceptual idea in, for this first half of the, of the passage is to point out what, God, what Satan is doing is he is creating a counterfeit trinity. He's creating a... a an unholy trinity, as it were. And what we're supposed to get out of this is that it's a counterfeit. It's a knockoff. It's like a folex. It looks good. Um, it looks beautiful. And trust me, the, what Satan creates in the world, he doesn't create it to look ugly. He doesn't create it to look bestial. He creates it to look and appear to us to be beautiful, to be, wor to be worthy of worship, to be worthy of dedicating our lives to. And the point, the first foundational conceptual idea that Revelation 13 lays down is this, that what Satan is, what Satan does, and what Satan offers us doesn't last and cannot last because it's not real. It's counterfeit. It's a cheap knockoff. It is a pale imitation of who God is and what God does and what God offers to us. So, question comes up. How is it, how does Satan do this? How does Satan offer this counterfeit to us? And here's where the Bible, here's where this passage calls us to have wisdom. Second point, the counterfeit is a counterfeit kingdom. Um, you know, we hear this, uh, this passage, right? Let's read it. Let's read it again. This is verse, verse 16. This calls for wisdom. And let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man and his number is 666. Now, we talked about numbers in Revelation a while ago. Uh, the symbolic nature of them, how ancient Near Eastern people would think versus how we think. And when we hear numbers, right, what's our go-to? Our go-to is uh, that these are real numbers and therefore we have to like break out our calculators and figure this stuff out. Especially now, this one is like 
double that because it actually says calculate in it, right? And so the world, you know, like the history of the church is the history of people busting out calculators or abacuses or whatever they had in the day and trying to figure out like some sort of mathematical formula or some sort of esoteric way of figuring out how the number 666 fit to the name of a man and then we can know who this beast is uh, and then we will be wise, right? And like I said, that is, a, that is a, the history of failed, the history of failed events. True story, true story. I filled in preaching once uh, for uh, a, a, a little church. I had good pulpit supply. There's a little church on Palomar Mountain. And I used to, when I was in seminary, I would go up and I would preach at this little church. One day I was preaching a sermon and there was a, there was a group of like Christian, there was like Christian RVers, right? These, this big group of Christians that had giant RVs and they would travel across, you know, go on big trips together. They happened to be at Palomar Mountain that day. And so uh, it was funny, this little like eight person church had swollen to 30 people. It was like, it was like a giant revival, right? So we were all excited. I preached the sermon. After the sermon, the guy comes up to me, one of these RV campers and starts like, he starts out kind of slow, but basically his point was, he's, the point that he was getting at was that he was trying to tell me that and make a biblical argument for the fact that tattoos were, in fact, the mark of the beast. And that if you had received, if you had gotten a tattoo, you know, <laughs> much less have you covered your body in tattoos that you had necessarily taken upon yourself the mark of the beast and what he was trying to tell me, <laughs> I, I think he was, you know, he was, trying to, he was trying to be nice to me. What he was trying to tell me was that that was unrecoverable. <laughs> Once you did that, it was all done. You would receive the mark of the beast and therefore you were a part of, uh, you know, part of the enemy's army. <laughs> And so I'm listening to the guy. I'm like, you know, the first thing I thought of was like, was like, wow, this poor guy. He just had to sit through an entire sermon by an apostate, Mark, you know, member of Satan's army with the mark of the beast on him. But what's the point? The point is, you know, that's just another example of how we've used our human wisdom and our own cultural ideas to, to calculate, to formulate uh, what the mark of the beast is. Uh, and in that case, it was sad. He was doing harm, right? I don't know. I mean, he didn't really phase me, but you know that belief. If you go out into the in the church and you you know tell people, if, especially if you were to do that from a position of spiritual authority in the church, that to receive a tattoo meant that you were beyond salvation. I think that could cause a lot of damage, and I I hope I hope he didn't do that. And so, the, listen. The answer. What I'm trying to say is. Our go-to is break out the calculator, figure out the esoteric formula, uh, and if we do that, if we come by this secret knowledge somehow, we'll reveal the beast, and that's wisdom. But that's not Christianity. What that is, is Gnosticism. <laughs> that's an ancient heresy that believes that there's some secret knowledge that we get through esoteric formulas and, uh, and, and whatnot. So that's not what it's calling us to do here. However, it is said that it is a call to wisdom. This is a call for us to figure this out. So how do we figure it out? 
Well, let's listen. Let's listen to the to the verse once more. This calls for wisdom. There's the call. It's God saying, figure this out. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, here's the biggest guess, the biggest, most popular, uh, probably the, 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 va- the vast majority, the bigger majority opinion on this is that 666 is the number of a man, and that man was Nero, the ancient Roman uh, Caesar, right? And why is that? It's because... Obviously, he was a, an evil ruler. He uh, persecuted the church. Uh, but more than that, if uh, there's in ancient languages, a lot of times they didn't have separate n- numbers. They would use the alphabet itself to be the number. So A was one, B was two, C was three, D was four, and they had this system worked out. And when you take the name Nero Caesar and you transliterate uh, from Greek into Hebrew, it comes up. The total of those of those letters is 666. Um, but not only that, there's another uh, there's another uh, textual history. There are other ancient manuscripts, uh, and these are from places where where Latin was spoken. And when you transliterate the name Nero Caesar from Latin into Hebrew, you get the number 616. And guess what those ancient manuscripts say. There's a textual tradition where the number of the beast isn't 666, it's 616. And so because there's that cultural element there, these cultural elements over here, the Greek speakers had the 666, the Latin speakers had 616. People put that together and they say, John was speaking and thinking primarily about Nero and about the power of the state and about evil rulers who are seeking to put themselves above God and present the state and state power and civic authority and the culture uh, above God to replace God with that, right? And I think I think that's pretty good evidence that there that that's part of it. That's part of the puzzle. Uh, seeing Nero in that light, however, Nero doesn't completely explain the text because it goes beyond him. It's way more expansive than just one guy in the first century. Uh, For example, it says the whole world marveled and followed after the beast. Uh, It says that this beast was given power for the 42 months, which we've already discovered is symbolic for the entire church age. Nero died in what, 64, 68 AD. Uh, also, he's the combination of animals that's used to describe him is straight out of the book of Daniel, where each one of those animals described a particular kingdom in the history of kingdoms leading up to Jesus. However, now all those kingdoms, all those animals are combined and to present a composite image of one of one ruler or one example of a ruler, right? All the his, all of those bestial nations are now brought together into one composite picture. So it goes beyond Nero. It's not just Nero, but it's somehow it's more expansive to speak of uh, what Nero represented: all state power, all uh, all state power and cultural power throughout the entire Church age. Also, the number itself, six six six. You know, we talked, um, you know, again, in the past, we talked about how the numbers in Revelation 
are all symbolic, every single one. And what that means is, um, it means when we look at the number 666, first the number six is invoking the sixth day of creation. It's invoking a picture of man uh, prior to the seventh day rest, prior to man engaging in his mission. One theologian called it, said that the number six, six really represents uh, the complete, the, uh, the, uh, the image of man uh, who has forfeited his mission uh, and has settled for less. And the number three signifies completeness. And so when you put that together, three sixes, it's kind of an uh, image or a picture of the complete incompleteness of man. Uh, and not only that, but the seal or the number, the seal or the, the mark of the beast is mocking uh, or uh, again, an imitation of, of the seal of Christ upon his believers uh, in Revelation 7. And then again, in the next chapter 14, 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads with the mark of Christ. So putting, look, putting this all together, there's more we could say, there's more we could get into, but just that much will give you a broad outline of the picture of what this is. And it is, it's presenting Nero the evil ruler Nero and the, the Roman Empire, which sought to replace and put itself above God uh, as the image or as the model or as the pattern of all state power that seeks to replace God in the lives of people. Uh, and in doing so, invokes people to worship it as the image of the dragon. And so the dragon receives worship in that way. And the false prophet... Uh, is that agency or that propaganda agency of the state power that compels people to buy into it, to believe that the state is above God, the state is the savior, the state is uh, able to replace God in our lives. And those who receive the mark of the beast are those true believers who completely buy into and worship and are part of the counterfeit kingdom. So obviously there's a lot more we can say about that, but that's the general idea. Does that mean, does that rule out the possibility that there may be some preeminent, ultimate world leader figure uh, that where all of this culminates in? Not at all. There very well could be someone like that. But if there is, we're not going to figure it out with our calculators. We're going to figure it out by looking through these filters that God has given us so that to be wise and to recognize what the beast is, what the number of the beast is, how what all this means. And so that brings up a problem, like right away. I mean, maybe the first question you're asking or the first question that I'm asking, that most people ask, is if that's true, if what you're saying is the beast is ultimately every manifestation of world empire or world or, or, or state government uh, that seeks to, to overshadow God or replace God in the minds and hearts and worship of the people. Uh, and, and the false prophet is the propaganda machine that goes in to make that happen. Maybe you're asking yourself, well, if that's true, how do we even, how do we even, how do we participate? 
in the, in the state? How do we participate in government? How are we supposed to participate in, in culture if that's what that is, right? And man, there's been books and books and books written about this. All, you know, many, many, many different opinions. There's a famous book called Christ and Culture that really goes into this. And one, you know, one position is people just say that the, uh, you know, that all state, all government, all culture is wicked and evil. And we are to cut ourselves off from that and not have anything to do with it. However, that like contradicts other parts of the Bible that says that we are to be in the world and interacting with the world, but not of it. On the other extreme, you know, there are people who can, you know, the, what Revelation is really preaching against and warning us against that there are parts of the church that have been deceived and they have they are they have compromised the faith to the point where they're completely compatible with culture and the ideals and the beliefs, religious beliefs and and moral beliefs of the culture and the government. So what do we do? How do we even, you know, how do we approach how do we approach our call? to be part of the world, yet realizing uh, that these institutions are the manifestation of Satan's counterfeit kingdom in the world. And the first thing that helps us is to realize that the big idea here is the state and culture's desire to replace God, to ignore him, to replace him with itself, to replace God and the kingdom of God and the promises of God uh, with an earthly utopia, as it were. And that, and that persecution of the church is really a secondary thing. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, right? And to recognize that these manifestations are on a scale. There are many, many, many shades of gray. There's Nero, who was basically hostile to Christianity, but not totally hostile to Christianity. Even Nero... He, um, you know, systematic. He 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 persecuted some people, but not all Christians. Uh, and then there are neutral governments that um, are able to, you know, present themselves as like the the source of ultimate security and ultimate satisfaction and ultimate protection in life, and yet leaves the church relatively unscathed. And we're we're kind of in that situation now here in the, in the West, for the most part. Um, we don't experience the kind of persecution that they do in other countries. Uh, and then on, you know, then on the far end, there are, there have been expressions of state power and of culture that are basically Christianized, meaning they selectively buy into the moral teachings of Jesus, uh, except for it's inconvenient to do so in, for the example, slavery and, and, and segregation in the South and in all of the United States, and even uh, the, the, the echoes of that and the systemic racism that still exists in the state and the church. But the thing, to, the thing we're called to have wisdom in is this, <laughs> is that none of those, none of those kingdoms, even the Christianized ones, are Christian. None of them are the kingdom of God. None of them deserve or should have our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate, uh, or, or should we place our ultimate hope 
or, or uh, for security, for satisfaction, for protection, whatever. Now, I mean, for us in the United States, that can be a tricky thing because uh, we're, we have, we have, in a large way, been given the sword. We can vote. We can shape politics in certain ways. We can actively, you know, participate in the culture and in the state to shape the state in certain ways. And God calls us to do that, right? In other parts of the world, it's not so confusing, right? Because you can't participate. You're not allowed to participate in the public square at all. Um, the big call to wisdom is to recognize no state government, no culture is the kingdom of God. We can participate in that, but it's not our ultimate citizenship. It's not our ultimate loyalty. And man, do we fall into that and in, 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 into temptations to hold up, you know, our, uh, fantasies of the culture and the government as we think it is or should be or once was. God calls us to wisdom. None of those things are that have our ultimate hope in the kingdom of God. However, our, he gives the, the model for us in this is the model of Daniel in, in the book of Daniel. How do we participate in culture? How do we go about um, loving the culture? How do, we go, how do we go about interacting with it? Our model in this day and age, because we too are sojourners, we too, the Bible presents us as exiles in the world, our model is the model of Daniel. Daniel and Daniel's friends, they served this kingdom. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon brought them into high-level government positions. Even though it was an utterly wicked kingdom, Daniel and his friends served that, that nation-state served that culture, uh, blessed it, and tried to bring into it the shalom peace of God as best they could, lending their wisdom to it, lending uh, their learning to it, uh, being part of the cultural process. However, that stopped when the state compelled them to actively sin. And when they were compelled to actively sin, they stood in their witness and they stood in faith Come what may, and that's what these, you know, these script. That's what this in in this passage. These, you know, these allusions to those who would not worship the beast to be slain. It's looking back to Daniel three when, uh, you know, they were thrown. The, the uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to the statue, uh, and this threat about not being able to buy or sell is hearkening, hearkening back to the letters to the churches where the angel says, you know, or, or uh, in, in Revelation 6, sorry, in the four horsemen, where the angel says a quart of wheat for a denarius, that there could be economic and there may be economic ramifications for holding fast and firm in faith. Uh, and so the call is for us, and the model for us, is to love and to serve our neighbors, to love and to serve the culture that we're in. However, when that culture calls us to actively sin and disobey uh, our, in our obedience to God, we're called to hold fast and to stand firm in faith, come what may. You know, and the hope for that is that in the ancient Near East, in the archaeological records of the ancient Near East, they have there's these 
there's these giant mounds like in the middle of deserts and these mounds are like ancient cities and ruins they call them tells uh and when you archaeologists dig into them they dig in and they find layer after layer after layer after layer of cultures who have come and cultures who have gone uh and what that is that is a record of the of of layer after layer after layer of failed counterfeit kingdom that Satan failed. Uh, and those layers will continue to pile up until the return of Jesus. And so what the big, what's the big takeaway from that? The big takeaway is that Satan attempts to be like God in every way. Uh, but in every way, he is a cheap imitation. He is a knockoff. His dominion on earth seems powerful. Uh, it seems and can very much be the real thing. And he has fooled countless people into believing that his counterfeit kingdom is the real thing and worthy of worship. But if you scratch beneath the surface, and you, what you see is that it is a miserable and stupid failure from beginning to end. And God calls us as his people to discern that, be wise about it, and not participate in it. To serve the kingdom, to serve the culture, but to not be a part of it. And all of this, all of this, all this up to this point is really for God to present his promise in this. That's the big lasting takeaway that God wants us to see in this. That's why the pastoral uh, aspect of this letter is, shines forth in the fact that this is a promise. God is, all of that is to set up the fact that God is promising us something. And that promise is the third part, is that God has promised to, to protect us. God promises to protect his people as we persevere in faith through this satanic counterfeit kingdom. And one of my favorite truths, uh, one of my very favorite truths is the truth that the, that the church, uh, the church has outlived uh, every empire that has sought to destroy it. All the way from, from you know, the beginning of with Abraham of God's people in Abraham all the way through the present day. There have been nations, states, and kingdoms that have risen and fell and risen and fell that have done their best to annihilate the church and church has outlived and survived all of them. And it will continue to do so. And part of the reason for that is because God has promised to preserve us, preserve us in our faith. We're able to hand down our faith from generation to generation, and God promises to preserve that. And that is, that's something that we call the perseverance of the saints. It's also partly the communion of saints throughout, you know, throughout the generations. But this passage, uh, this passage calls us uh, to persevere and to endure. Uh, and that endurance, that perseverance is, is God's promise to us saying that no matter what Satan throws at us, no matter what happens, the church will continue in faith from generation to the next without fail. One of the, the best definition of the preservation or the, the perseverance of the saints was by R.C. Sproul, who said he thought really it should be called the preservation of the saints because 
behind our perseverance is God's preservation of us. And that's what this passage is teaching us. So let's let's look at that. First, let's read 18, or I'm sorry, verses 8 through 10 again, where it calls this out. It says, And all who dwell on earth will and all all those who dwell on earth will worship. This is the image of the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the word world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now what it, what it really says in Greek is here is the endurance and faith of the saints. It's, a, it's descriptive. It's describing a quality of the saints, and that quality is endurance or perseverance in our faith. Now listen, when we say that, especially as in our tradition, um, when we say and we talk about the perseverance of the saints, we almost always think about it in the terms of an abstract theological idea. Oh, I know what that means. That means that God is going to preserve us to the end. But that's not all of it. This passage really brings out that this is not just an abstract theological concept. This is a lived reality. This passage is telling us that perseverance, uh, it's not just a doctrine that we adhere to. It's something that we will live through as saints. When he says to captivity, if so, to those who are going to captivity, to captivity they must go, to the sword, to the sword they must go. He's not talking about the enemies of God. He's talking about us. He's saying that ye, we will go through hardship and maybe not death, maybe not captivity, but in some shape or form as Christians standing firm in faith, we're going to go through hardships. And, that in, and, and God, in and through that hardship, it, we are called to persevere. Now, it's important to understand that we're called to persevere, not in works, but in what? We're called to persevere in our faith, which means what we're called to do is that when that hardship hits, we're called to persevere in standing fast to the witness of Christ and not compromise our faith, not compromise uh, to to our faith until it becomes something that looks exactly like the world. It's basically a, a model or an image of the counterfeit culture or the counterfeit um, kingdom of Satan. We're called to persevere through real hardship. That's a fact. However, the bigger question is, and the promise in this, is why or how? How is it that we persevere uh, through our faith. And the way we persevere is because God is preserving us. Listen to what it says again. What's the determining factor? The determining factor for those who fall into the deception and those who don't, the determining factor is the book of life written before the foundation of the world. Listen, it says those who dwell on the earth will worship it Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain, which means the only people who are going to fall for the deception of Satan's counterfeit kingdom 
and, be ha- and receive the mark and become the true believers in that kingdom and worship the beast are those people whose names were not written in the, in the book of life from before. And the, when was that book written? From before the foundation of the world. It presents two categories and two categories only. There's no category here for those whose name were written in and then erased. There's no category for that. There's either your name was written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world, and if that's true of you, God will preserve you through this evil age. And if your name is not written in that book of life, you will fall into deception. And that's harsh. That's a hard reality. However, what this brings out is that there's only two categories, and that means that means this, that our perseverance through hardship, uh, when your faith holds through really hard things, whatever that may be, when you don't blame God for your trouble and cut and run or go and try some other religion out or try something else out or say, God, you know, I tried Christianity, didn't work for me. But when in the midst of hardship, in the midst of whatever trouble that you experience in life, you say to yourself, God is my only hope. That is primary evidence that God is preserving you, which means that our perseverance isn't what isn't the means to being saved. It's the evidence that we are being saved. And in that, we should rejoice. We should rejoice in God's promise. Now, we in the West, in America, we don't have much. We don't have much to persevere through. But what we, that, that we do have to persevere through, what we do see, God calls us to rejoice in that. Because tested faith is true faith. And true faith is worth more than all the gold in the world because it is evidence that God is preserving us. And it's God's promise to continue to preserve us, come what may, through this temporary counterfeit kingdom and into the eternal kingdom of God. And in that, we can rest our hope and we can rest in the promise of God and we can rejoice. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's worship.